This is exactly right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a journalist, author, and podcast host. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired investigator with experience solving some of America's most notorious cold cases. Together, we host Buried Bones, a historical true crime podcast on the Exactly Right Network. Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies. Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. I kind of see it as like a, a warning about putting too much faith in untested technologies or throwing our weight behind flawed technologies. Just because they're shiny and new doesn't necessarily mean they're accurate or better than, than what's come before. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. One of the most controversial tools used by investigators is the lie detector. It's often used to intimidate suspects, and sometimes it's responsible for confessions, both real and false. The lie detector's origin is grounded in deception, abuse, and of course, murder. Author Amit Katwala tells us about his book, Tremors in the Blood, Murder, Obsession, and the Birth of the Lie Detector. We can start with the Wilkins case. This is May 1922, so 101 years ago almost as we're recording this. And a woman called Anna is driving back from a camping trip in the mountains with her husband, Henry. They're in California in the Santa Cruz Mountains, driving north towards San Francisco. It's kind of getting late. They've got their kids in the backseat. And as they drive into San Francisco on the edge of the city, they notice a car following them. And the car speeds up and gets closer and closer and closer and eventually drives them to the side of the road. And they crash into the curb. And then a guy comes running up to the window and points a gun at Henry saying, you know, give me all your money. And then there's a struggle. Henry tries to reach for his own gun to kind of tell this bandit to get lost. But what ends up happening is that the bandit fires a bullet into the car. And rather than hitting Henry, he hits his wife, Anna, instead. So Anna's been shot. The bandit runs off. Henry drives to a hospital. But when he gets to the hospital, the doctors tell him that his wife is dead. What do we know about the bandit? Because I'm assuming Henry has a decent description, although we know that witnesses oftentimes don't have a good description when they've gone through something traumatizing like that. Yeah, his description is pretty vague. He describes this kind of like reasonably tall man with a bandana tied over his face. It was getting dark, so there wasn't a huge amount of light for him to see by. He describes the car um, as being a red Dodge. He describes there being three men in the car. This is the description that Henry kind of gives to police that evening when they interview him at the hospital. One thing I think is interesting, in all of the research in history, police are skeptical of crime victims who are giving a description that's too vague. And then they're also skeptical 
of crime victims who give a description that is way too specific. So now I start thinking, well, I wonder what, what is the right amount of information that they're looking for? And police are skeptical at this point. Is that right? Yeah, so they immediately start to get a little bit skeptical because they interview another witness, a guy called Jacob Gorfinkel, who had kind of seen this little car chase unfold um, on 19th Avenue in San Francisco. And his description of the vehicle did not match Henry's description of the vehicle. So Henry said that the car that had been following him and Anna was a red Dodge, but this guy, Jacob Gorfinkel, said it was a blue Hudson. So there was one discrepancy right there already, but in all other ways, Henry seemed like, you know, a distraught husband who just lost his wife. He was so upset in the hospital that he almost collapsed, passed out. So I don't think they were really suspicious at this point of him having been involved or anything like that. They maybe, maybe thought that, you know, here's a guy who's just been through a really traumatic event. Maybe he's not remembering things clearly. And maybe if we speak to him in a few days, he'll be able to give us a fuller picture. But they immediately kind of started looking for the culprits based on the description that Henry had given them. What is Jacob saying? Did he see the whole thing or did he just see a car trailing them? He was parked by the side of the road or he was driving along the road with his own family and he was with his wife and his son and his son, it's noted in the newspaper accounts, was kind of like car obsessed so he could like recognize the (laughs) different engine noises that the different cars would make, which became quite significant later on. But so he's driving along and he sees two cars go speeding past and the first car is Henry's yellow Premier car. Henry was a mechanic, so he loved cars, and he was really proud of this yellow, bright yellow car that he had. I think of it in my head a bit like the car from The Great Gatsby, you know, just sort of Mm -hmm. speeding along. So he saw this one car go past, and then he saw this other car go past really fast. So that's the first thing he saw. Mm -hmm. And then maybe five minutes later, he continues driving further along the road, and he sees Henry's car stop by the side of the road, and Henry waves him down and says, help, help, my wife's been shot, I need to get her to a hospital. So he doesn't see the crime unfold, but he kind of sees the kind of two cars go past him. He hears maybe the gunshot, hears shouting, but he doesn't actually see the the actual shooting. So he can't really confirm anything beyond the fact that these were the two cars that were involved and that Henry was frantic, covered in blood. The shooting did happen where and when Henry said it happened, but not how it happened. Okay. So when do things turn for Henry? Because I'm assuming that's the road we're heading down right now. Essentially what happens is over the next kind of three, four days, the police chase down all these leads. They stop cars that look similar to the car Henry described. They pull over suspicious-looking people, but none of the people are, you know, the culprits. And then a couple of days later, what happens is that at a garage in the Mission in San Francisco, two brothers called Walter and Arthur Castor come in. What was taken from Henry in the robbery were three $100 bills. Now, Mm. $100 bills back then were a lot rarer than they are now. Yeah, You know, the minimum wage was 33 cents an hour. So having a $100 bill was kind of suspicious unless you were of a particular social class. So, yeah, at Garage and the Mission, these two brothers, Walter and Arthur Castor, come in and they try to pay for a $1.25 car repair with a $100 bill. Mm. By now, it's two days after the murder. The details of the crime have been splashed all over the papers. And the garage owner's immediately suspicious. So when the brothers leave, he calls the police. The brothers were sort of well known to the police. They're these sort of archetypal agents of chaos. Walter is particularly just a great character who I couldn't have wished for a better character, you know, a better villain for the book. (laughs) He's covered in scars. He's got tattoos all over his hands. The story is apparently that he was kicked in the head by a horse when he was a boy. And ever since then, he'd been kind of violent and prone to these kind of impulsive, sort of reckless decisions. Hmm. And then Arthur is his, his brother who kind of reigns him in a little bit, but also has his own sort of criminal past. So the police get this tip from the garage owner. They pull these two brothers in for questioning. The brothers deny having had anything to do with it. And then they do a police lineup where they ask Henry to kind of come in and say 
were these the men that robbed you and shot your wife? And Henry says, no, no, I've never seen these men before in my life. That's a couple of days later. But then over the week after that, it transpires that actually Henry did know the Castor brothers. In fact, he had worked with Walter Castor a few years prior. So parts of his story were kind of starting to unravel. So if you take the fact that Jacob Goldfingal described a different car to the car Henry described, and the fact that Henry seemed to have lied about knowing the Castor brothers in the police lineup, things start to kind of get a little bit murky, and the police start to get a little bit suspicious. What is their car that they would have used in this? Does it match the description of either Henry's or Jacob's? Yeah, not initially. So they show the Castor brothers' car to Henry and to the attorney, but it's not the same car. Mm-hmm. Eventually, once Henry says these aren't the guys, they let the Castor brothers go. Mm-hmm. And it's only after they let the Castor brothers go that the police discover that actually the car that was used had been rented from a garage by the Castor brothers for the day of the murder and then given back about 45 minutes after the murder. So they've got a definite link between the car that was used and the Castor brothers. And they've got a link between the Castor brothers and Henry, which both sides kind of denied that link. And they only put it together kind of after it's too late, after they've already released the Castor brothers back into society. So I'm assuming where we're heading is that the police are going to believe that Henry hired these brothers to kill his wife for some reason. That's right, yeah. And actually, the other thing that kind of emerges during this time is that although Henry had been this sort of picture of a grieving husband, there had been some domestic issues in his marriage. He had been accused of kind of beating his wife, Anna. Another police officer discovered that he had actually filed for divorce a month prior. So there had been this kind of growing tension in the marriage. Putting all this together, they had this picture of this guy who was growing more and more suspicious, but they didn't have any evidence. They didn't have the Castor brothers in custody anymore to kind of corroborate that side of the story. And Henry was still denying everything. So they didn't really have anything to go on. And so that's when they decided to turn to this new machine that had just been invented across the bay in Berkeley. There's so many fascinating characters. I mean, there's a whole strand about this guy called William Marston. He's the kind of originator of the idea of the lie detector. So just to give like a super, super quick overview, the theory behind the lie detector is that it works by tracking your blood pressure and your pulse, and that if you are lying, your blood pressure and your pulse will change compared to when you're telling the truth. There had been suspicions about this going back hundreds or thousands of years. There's all these stories from ancient China Hmm. and India, folk theories about how to tell someone was, was lying and that kind of build on this rough idea. But Marston was a Harvard psychologist, and he kind of measured peers' blood pressure while they told lies, and he kind of noticed this link. But he did it in a very sort of unstructured, kind of ad hoc way. Mm-hmm. Marston would go on to invent Wonder Woman, the comic book <laughs> character, which is kind of mad. With the lasso, right? Is that what it was? Exactly, yeah. The lasso that made people tell the truth. That was one of my favorite things about Wonder Woman. That's right, yeah. And it was inspired by his, his actual work in lie detection. And he kind of pursued his career in lie detection in a sort of parallel way to the characters in my book. But in 1921, August Vollmer, who was the chief of police in Berkeley, read this paper by Marston in an academic journal. Now, Vollmer was a really fascinating guy. He is considered the father of modern policing because he was the first police chief in America to really kind of try and bring science to policing. So policing in the early 20th century was quite brutal still. It was kind of billy clubs and the third degree Mm -hmm. and beating confessions out of people. Vollmer wanted to humanize it a bit and bring in kind of more scientific rigor and stuff like that. So he brought in radios for his officers. He was one of the first police officers to give them bicycles and motorcycles and cars so they could cover more ground. He pioneered the use of like crime mapping, fingerprinting, forensic photography, things like that. Mm -hmm. Another really interesting thing that Volmer did was he was one of the first police chiefs in America to hire college graduates to be cops. So 
Before that, it was generally kind of older men. There wasn't a huge amount of difference between the cops and the criminals they were trying to catch in terms of their demographic background and, and their kind of status in society. Varma changed that by hiring college cops. And at first, he was kind of kind of widely mocked in the newspapers for doing this. People thought these sort of, you know, 19 and 20-year-old boys would be too soft to really grasp the problem of crime. So anyway, Volma read this paper by Marston about this link between blood pressure and lie detection. And he thought that John Larson, who was one of his college cops, would be the perfect person to turn this idea, this insight into a machine that could actually be used to systematically determine whether someone was lying during a police interview. So that brings us to John Larson, who again is, you couldn't wish for a better character. No. He was a bit older than the other college cops. He was 29 years old. He wanted to be a criminologist, John Larson, but before he did that, he wanted to get some kind of real world experience of crime fighting. Now, Larson was stubborn, awkward, just belligerent, often got into like disputes with his employers. I've read so many of his letters and he's just a fascinatingly sort of prickly character who always works against his own interests. Large amounts of hubris is always the impression I had about John Larson. Yeah, but just stubbornness as well, just the most stubborn man. And in every way that Volmer was kind of egalitarian and open and friendly, Larson was sort of closed off and stubborn and stuck his heels in. He was also a really terrible cop. He would constantly (laughs) like just... He crashed two cars, he got in fights with his colleagues, like slept on the job, all this kind of thing. So I think for Larson, it was a bit of a relief when Volmer kind of said to him, okay, I'm taking you off the beat and you can just work on this machine full time. Over the next few weeks, months in the spring of 1921, Larson developed this machine and it looks pretty similar to the light detectors of today. It's got a kind of pen that scratches the lines on a, on a scrolling piece of paper. It's got the blood pressure cuff that goes around your arm. Mm-hmm. It's got the pneumographs which measure your breathing. They wrap around your chest. Actually, in 100 years, the equipment really hasn't changed that much. So over the next year, Larson tested this equipment. He solved a few cases, including some thefts at college dorms. He used the lie detector in the William Hightower Father Heslin case, which you talk about in your book, American Sherlock, Mm -hmm. where I think it ultimately agreed with the jury in terms of getting the right answer about whether Hightower had committed the crime or not. And then a year later, he used it on the Henry Wilkins case. What I found interesting about doing all the research on the lie detector with this case, I'll just summarize very quickly. So the William Hightower case happened in 1921. A priest goes missing in Colma, California, and ends up dead. And there is a man who has arrived at a church and is trying to guide the police on where to find this body. And finally, the police figure out that he was the one who did it, William Hightower. And they bring him and they strap him to this machine that John Larson had just made portable, I think. And they strap him and he's petrified and nonsensical. And that leads me to one of the things that I know you and I will talk about is why it doesn't work. William Hightower very clearly had schizophrenia. And that is one of the things, mental health, I mean, medicine. I mean, there's so many reasons why this is not an accurate machine, with the exception of scaring the hell out of people when they're strapped up to it and they fail. You make a really good point. You can't assume that someone's blood pulse is racing because they're lying. There could be a myriad of reasons why that's happening. Mm -hmm. They could be scared of getting caught or they could be scared of getting wrongly accused. And the blood pressure and pulse will do exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. And you can't expect everyone to react the same way to the same questions. Hightower is a perfect example of someone with a mental health condition. There's no reason to expect that their physiological reaction to questioning would be the same as someone else. And also, I talked to a forensic psychologist when I was working on that book who said people with psychopathy will pass with flying colors because they actually believe 
the lies that they're saying. So everything from medicine to the bad day you had to whatever, it could say your blood pressure's high, your heart rate's high, but it can't say why. And I think that's why every time I see on a true crime show, you know, oh, he failed the lie detector. Who cares? I mean, I guess it intimidates people sometimes into confessions, but I'm assuming we're going down the road that Henry gets strapped to one of these lie detectors and they start asking questions. How Do the questions work with a suspect? Do they start out easy and get hard? So the way it works generally is, or the way it's supposed to work, is that you have control questions and you have target questions. And they're supposed to be yes or no questions. So the way it works is that you break it down into the control questions and that that helps you establish a baseline for what that person's body response is when they're telling the truth. And then when you ask the target questions, you can then compare their responses to the target questions to their responses to the baseline questions. And that will give you some indication of whether they're lying or not. So for Henry, the target questions were things like, do you like the movies? Do you smoke? Have you ever seen visions? Do you drink to excess? And then the questions were about the crime were, you know, did you hire anyone to commit this murder? Do you know Arthur or Walter Castor? When did you first see the car? Specifics about the crime. Exactly. Specifics about the crime. Henry was you know, kind of an interesting character as well, quite moody, obviously kind of sometimes quite violent. He and Anna were German immigrants. There were a lot of German immigrants in San Francisco at the time. There was still a degree of suspicion about the immigrant community in San Francisco at that time, particularly after the war, after the First World War, Germans in America had seen their place in society kind of slip somewhat. So there was maybe a degree of bias against Henry from the press, the public. But, you know, Larson did the test and he analysed the result. He said to press afterwards that he was a willing subject, that he was nervous, but actually he was convinced that he was telling the truth. In fact, Henry had been so nervous during the test that it took ages for the pulse to sort of settle down to the point where Larson could actually perform the test, which perhaps is a clue that maybe something wasn't quite right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so Henry passed the test. The examiner kind of splashed this big story saying, you know, science says he tells the truth. And there's a column from John Larson about, you know, why... Larson thought that Henry was telling the truth, so police let him go, and and, uh, they continued with their investigation, basically starting from scratch, because the Castor brothers were gone, and Henry seemed to be telling the truth according to the polygraph machine. Amazing. And in the press, what was the reaction? Did everybody just think this was the greatest machine ever? Yeah, up to this point, it has been quite positive, and I think that both Volmer, August Volmer, and John Larson had been quite effusive in their praise of the machine. And it was only really after this case that Larson began to get very worried about this. These are the words he actually used. He called it a Frankenstein's monster. He began to get very worried about this Frankenstein's monster that he had unleashed. Mm -hmm. And I think if it had been up to John Larson, he would have maintained very, very tight control over the machine and the idea, and no one else would have used it unless it was under his direct supervision so he could make sure that they were using it properly. The problem is that in 1921, Larson met a high school student called Leonard Keeler. Uh, Leonard Keeler was a, a kind of family friend of August Vollmer, and he was a 16, precocious 16-year-old kid who was kind of sickly, in and out of school with various illnesses, loved the outdoors, used to milk rattlesnakes for their venom and like perform close-up magic. Basically, Vollmer brought Keeler into the police department one day, and Keeler saw Larson doing a lie detector test on a suspect. And Keeler was like basically instantly fascinated by this machine. And over the next few years became Larson's protege, I guess, kind of helped him carry the machine around, helped him set it up in different cases, helped him basically run the tests. Mm-hmm. And in the years that follow, it was it was really Leonard Keeler who was responsible for popularizing the polygraph and spreading it all across America. 
And Larson and Keeler basically ended up absolutely despising each other. Larson thought that Keeler had sort of bastardized his machine and hmm. sold it to the highest bidder and wasn't adhering to scientific principles. Keeler thought Larson was stubborn and stuck up and, you know, was trash-talking him all around town, which he was. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so yeah, they, these two creators of the lie detector had this spectacular falling out. So what ends up happening ultimately with the Henry Wilkins case? Do they come to a conclusion? Do they track down the Castor brothers? So what happens is that as soon as Henry leaves his lie detector test, he goes home, he goes to his garage, and then he goes to a secret meeting with Robert Castor, who is the brother of Walter and Arthur, who are Hmm. missing. What he doesn't know is that he's being followed, Henry, when he does this. So this is immediately a very, very suspicious red flag. You've just passed the lie detector test saying you had nothing to do with the Castor brothers. Then you're going to a meeting with their brother immediately afterwards. So what ends up happening is that the police manage to eventually find Arthur and bring him back to San Francisco. And they put him in a jail cell and try and get him to confess. And he doesn't confess for a few days. He confessed to being part of the murder of Anna Wilkins, being one of the bandits that pulled her over and shot her. It takes a few days, but the way they eventually get a confession is through some sort of clever thinking by Matthew Brady, who was the district attorney. They basically put Arthur Custer in this cell, and then they put this kid in the cell next to him, who they tell Arthur has been arrested for the Henry Wilkins case. Mm. And all night, Arthur can hear this kid next to him wailing in his cell about how he's been wrongly accused and how they're going to execute him. And after two nights of this, Arthur's conscience gets the better of him. And he basically tells the police everything. He tells them that, yes, Henry had paid him and Walter to shoot his wife, but that Walter was the ringleader. But the first thing Arthur knew about it was when they started following the car back to San Francisco and that, that Walter had just told Arthur that he was going to run an errand and that he needed his help with something so that he was an unwilling accomplice. So that really obviously was very incriminating for Henry, who had also left San Francisco at this point. So that the police then fetched Henry, dragged him back to San Francisco with some uh, some force, shall we say, in the sort of uh, 1920s uh, manner. They had Arthur Castor in jail as well. But what they didn't have was Walter Castor and they really needed Walter as the alleged ringleader to bring charges forward to take this case to trial. Now, Walter has been on the run in Northern California for a few weeks, but then he decides to come back to San Francisco and the police eventually track him down to a house. It's in Petrero Hills, a kind of southern San Francisco. It's his mother's house, so the Castor's mother's house. And the police go over there to apprehend Walter. There's like three or four police officers and they ring the doorbell. Minnie Castor, who's their mother, answers the door. She says, you know, Walter's not here. But through the door, they can see the kind of remains of a half-eaten breakfast Mm -hmm. on the kitchen table. And they're with Walter's girlfriend, who's the one who's kind of led them to that house as well. So at the door, you've got a couple of police officers, Walter's girlfriend, and then inside you've got Minnie Castor, who's the mother. So the police push into the house, and as they do, basically chaos breaks out. So Walter shoots a few shots. He's hiding in the kitchen, shoots a few shots, kills one of the police officers, shoots the other one above the eye, and then ends up shooting his girlfriend and himself in this wow. kind of like five minutes of bloodshed in this in this house in San Francisco. You know, John Larson is watching this from across the bay in Berkeley. He, he reads about it in the newspapers, hears about it through his colleagues, and he's distraught. He's yeah. like 
God, my machine contributed to this. You know, if, if it had got the right answer, then maybe this wouldn't have happened. Maybe they would have kept Henry in custody. Maybe they would have been able to solve the case without having to resort to this violence. So yeah, that's kind of where things end up. And then obviously the case goes to trial over the next few months and all the evidence gets presented. And the case is really like a the two sides, you know, on one side, they're arguing that Henry was the mastermind that he paid the Castor brothers. And then the other side... The defense's argument is essentially, you can't trust the brothers, you know. Yeah. They're so shady, they're so dodgy, you can't trust a word they say. So it really comes down to, like, trust and who you can believe. And eventually, Henry gets acquitted. It takes two trials, but eventually he gets acquitted. And John Larson is sort of, he's never really able to let this case go. Hmm. So even though Henry gets acquitted, so after Henry gets acquitted and released, John Larson kind of makes the point of actually befriending Henry Wilkins. And he helps him find a new job. And he helps him move from San Francisco to further north in California. And then he convinces Henry to do another lie detector test a couple of months later. Larson is so convinced that this guy is guilty and he's so convinced that his machine got it wrong and he kind of wants to make amends. So he convinces him to do another lie detector test and Henry passes that one again. Wow. And then he also convinces him to to undergo a truth serum test, which again is another sort of pseudoscientific thing from back then. And again, Henry passes that too. And that's kind of where the case ends with, with Henry, a free man, Larson completely turned around on his machine. You know, he's gone from thinking it's the greatest thing to hit criminology ever to thinking of it as this sort of Frankenstein's monster. Larson doesn't stop it, right? He continues on. They continue using it. He doesn't go to the press and say, I got to tell you, I think that my machine got this wrong. He doesn't do that. I think even by then it's too late. By then it's the mid-1920s and Keeler and Volmer have moved to LA and then they move to Chicago and they take the lie detector with him and they get splashy headlines about how effective it is and then they roll it out across the world. And Larson watches this from a place of increasing frustration over the next, you know, 30 years um, as this machine that he thought would bring about justice actually becomes just like another form of psychological manipulation. He wanted to use the lie detector to end physical torture, but actually what he ended up creating was a tool of psychological torture. And that's one of the great sadnesses. Now, what I remember is sometime in the 20s, was it the U.S. Supreme Court or was it California Supreme Court that said, this is stupid, you cannot use it in court, which I was shocked because they were letting everything into court. So even in the 20s, judges were saying, I don't think this is good evidence. Did that not slow this thing down? I guess not. You're talking about the Fry case. Yes. Which is a really famous legal standard. So this is what William Marston was working on kind of on the side. So while Larson and, and Keeler and Volmer were solving crimes in San Francisco, William Marston was on the other coast. He was in Washington teaching law and trying to get the polygraph or get lie detection accepted in court. He brought this case to court, centering around a murder of a, a prominent doctor in Washington by a guy called James Alfonso Fry, who was a First World War vet. And the judge in this case said that you can't use a new invention in a federal courtroom until it's kind of reached broad acceptance by experts in the field. Mm-hmm. And that became the Fry, known as the Fry standard. And it, for decades, even until I think the 1970s or 80s, it was kind of the de facto way that American courts decided whether or not new inventions like fingerprinting, like DNA, mm-hmm. like hair analysis, whatever it might be, where, whether they were acceptable in court. So yes, the Fry standard actually barred the polygraph from federal courtrooms has barred the polygraph from federal courtrooms ever since it was invented, essentially 100 years. The problem is that the polygraph is used not necessarily in federal courtrooms, but kind of in parts of investigations before cases get to trial. It's used because it's a quicker way of getting a confession. It's used as a way of coercing. It's intimidating. Exactly. So tell me about the next big case 
You've got John Larson, who has used this, and other people now are using this. Are they using the lie detector as the sole source of evidence in any criminal case? Or does there have to be something else there, even in the 1920s, for them to say a preponderance of evidence for guilt? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the same system hasn't changed. So I think, you know, you do need other evidence. I guess the problem comes when you, if you bias proceedings by using the lie detector. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you have to question whether someone can get a fair trial if all over the newspapers it's been splashed, has failed lie detector test or, or that kind of thing, or whether it leads the police down certain avenues of investigation or closes up other avenues of investigation because of this faulty reasoning, or this faulty science. Hmm. Keeler in particular and Volmer and Larson worked on a bunch of cases over the next few decades, and I cover some of them in the book. And they moved from San Francisco to LA, and then they ended up in Chicago, which was sort of the crime capital, maybe of the world in the 1930s, actually. You know, you Probably, had like yes. Al Capone and like, it was just this amazing city of like, you know, you had the stockyards and you had the massive immigration and you had gangs and mobsters and all this kind of stuff going on. And it was like not long, it was around the time of the Val- Valentine's Day Massacre, you know, that famous mm-hmm. series of killings in, in Chicago. So it was around that kind of time. So it was all sort of film noir, The Untouchables, Elliot Ness, all that kind of stuff. Mm. But yeah, they pitched up there, uh, Keeler and Volmer and and Larson, to a certain extent, founded like an institute of criminology and tried to kind of commercialize and expand the use of criminology, forensic science to, to fight crime. And they did some really interesting stuff and they thought some really fascinating cases. And then the second case I look at in the book is about the murder of a guy called Max Dent. He's kind of um, a sort of low-level drug dealer turned informant in Chicago, in the west side of Chicago in, in 1935. And one day, Max Dent is walking to get cigarettes, and he gets gunned down by a mysterious assailant. And police, like, kind of do their investigative work, and they quickly find the culprit, or the alleged culprit, a guy called Joe Rappaport, who is one of the guys that Max Dent had informed against, and in fact was the only person who Max Dent had informed against who was not yet behind bars. He was still awaiting trial. Mm -hmm. But Dent had a lot of enemies, so it could have been that someone who was already in jail because of him had hired someone to kill him or whatever. So it wasn't, you know, 100% a done deal. So Rappaport gets given the death penalty. So he's sentenced to to death and he's uh, on death row and his sister Rose writes hundreds of letters to anyone she can to try and get the sentence commuted or delayed or, or, or whatever. And over the kind of course of several months, years, the execution date keeps getting pushed back and delayed for various reasons. So, you know, appeals, then there's like Jewish holidays, so it can't happen. And then eventually it comes to Henry Horner, who was the governor of um, Illinois at the time. And he gets the final decision on whether or not this guy is going to live or die, whether he's finally going to face the electric chair or not. Henry Horner was the governor of Illinois at this time, but previously he'd been a judge and actually he'd used the lie detector to solve a case of police corruption in Chicago a couple of years earlier. Hmm. So he knew Leonard Keeler and he knew August Vollmer and he knew about the lie detector. So when it finally came down, after four days of execution, it finally came down to this decision about whether this guy, Joe Rappaport, should get executed or not. Horner said to him, he said, if you can pass the lie detector test, then we won't execute you. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, yeah which is kind of nuts. So this is like March 1937 by this point. Everyone's a lot older and a bit more battered. Keeler has gone from being this kind of like fresh-faced 16-year-old kid to he's in his early 30s and he's got a drinking problem and his life is a mess, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. Larson has been 
basically like exiled from polite society because of his belligerence and and his <laughs> sort of ability to rub people up the wrong way. Bowman's back in San Francisco, but his health is deteriorating. So Keeler kind of goes to the Cook County Jail with with the lie detector um, in tow. So I should say that Keeler kind of redesigned the lie detector and he made it more sleek and, and commercial. He made hmm. this like beautiful kind of... John Larson's lie detector was kind of scraggly and sort of like uh, rustic. It's like in a suitcase. <laughs> yeah. And then Keeler bought this kind of nice walnut box with like beautiful little dials and a little scroll of paper and stuff like that. <laughs> so Keeler kind of turns up at the Cook County Jail with this lie detector and he does the lie detector test on Jay Rappaport. Now, when Larson had designed the test, it was supposed to be kind of done in, in a way that, you know, quiet room, quiet surroundings, mm-hmm. everyone at peace. And this test was done in a jail cell at Cook County with police officers and kind of media peering through the bars. Yeah with the lights flickering because they were testing the electric chair in the next room. Oh, my gosh. And it's like, how are you supposed to be calm in that scenario? So Rappaport fails the test. Keela calls up the governor and says he's failed the test. And half an hour later, he goes to the electric chair. Oh, my gosh. And it's a really harrowing case. My view is that Joe Rappaport was probably guilty. Mm-hmm. I mean, my view is that the death penalty shouldn't be used, but that's a kind of separate issue. Mm-hmm. If we are going to use it, you cannot use it on the basis of a scientific test carried out under these conditions. You know, he was convicted by a jury. That's fair enough. Let that stand. Don't bring this kind of pseudoscientific stuff into the box. You know, this this test should not have been given the last word on this guy's life, basically. So, yeah, and that's kind of where the kind of main section of the book ends. And then, you know, Larson and Keeler continued to bicker. This was sort of the last straw for Larson. He was just like again, absolutely distraught by what his invention had been used for. And, you know, he wrote hundreds of letters complaining about about this to Keeler and to anyone else who would listen about, you know, how this Frankenstein monster had got out of his control. And, yeah, Keeler's life kind of unraveled a bit after this as well. He drank more and more and more, and he died really young. He had, like, a heart condition. And, yeah, so I think it's interesting that this machine that sort of has transformed the justice system, also sort of wrecked its mm-hmm. creators' lives largely. It had such a big impact on them. You know, even the cases they worked on, it, it sort of, they really affected them. You know, if you look at the National Sciences Report, which analyzed each essentially tool of forensic science that we use and sort of rates it and says, this is what's reliable. Toxicology is reliable. DNA generally is reliable. And then you look at these pattern matching things, right? So fingerprinting and footprints and shoe prints and stuff where you're really depending on the analyst to know what they're doing and to make these comparisons, at least in the 1920s and 30s. You think about the lie detector test, and it's not even a, the analyst doesn't know what they're doing. It's the, it doesn't measure the right thing, you know? It's like taking a blood test and saying, well, I'm going to, you know, try to detect this poison, but testing it for the wrong poison completely. Oh, there's no poison in here. Well, you tested for arsenic and you're looking for, you know, perhaps there's strychnine in there. So I thought the book really was grounded in a lot of relevance today because we are seeing so much, just this huge amount of evidence that comes from all of these different sources. And some of it is very, very good and some of it's not. And I think when we see this like flashy scene of police officers strapping someone up to a lie detector test, it's, I'm sure, terrifying to anybody, guilty or not guilty. Yeah, that's right. I think you make a really interesting point. I mean, Keeler himself said that the polygraph is no more of a lie detector than a stethoscope is a lie detector. All it's doing is recording your pulse and your blood pressure and your breathing and then writing it down on the chart. And 
it requires some human interpretation. Therefore, bias creeps in and it's not an objective measurement. It's very subjective. There's huge discrepancies in being found guilty depending on your race and and gender and things like that. It's very unregulated. And the reason I wrote the book actually was that, as you say, this was 100 years ago. And we've known about the faulty reasoning behind this machine for 100 years. But what we're seeing today is the proliferation of other lie detector technologies using brain scans, using AI, using pupil dilation. Facial recognition. I mean, there's so much. Yeah. Exactly. And they all kind of suffer from the same fundamental flaw, which is that there's no such thing as a lie detector. If you talk to people in the field, they'll say there's no telltale sign of lying that's true for everyone all the time. There's no such thing as like Pinocchio's nose, right? Mm -hmm. Even if your lie detector works for 90% of people, that's still a huge number of people that doesn't work for. Even if it works for 99% of people, well, how can you be sure that that person you're using on isn't in that 1%? Mm -hmm. And actually, the cases where it gets used are those edge cases, right? They're cases where it's not clear who did it. Mm -hmm. It's not clear who's telling the truth. And those are exactly the cases where the lie detector is likely to go wrong. Well, Paul Holes and I often talk about having one piece of evidence that seems rock solid, like DNA evidence, versus having a huge amount of circumstantial evidence. He would rather have a case with a lot of circumstantial evidence that's unbreakable. You know, that's just, it paints a picture versus DNA where any good defense attorney is going to be able to say, yeah, but this lab had that problem that one time. Is it possible that the chain of custody was broken that one time? So I feel like the lie detector test, I know it's used as a tool and probably I'll hear from investigators saying, well, it's a, <laughs> you'll thank me if something happens to one of your family members and we catch the guy and they confess to hurting your family member using the lie detector. But, you know, as my father always said, he would rather have 100 criminals go free than one person who's innocent be behind bars. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point. And it's something I really struggled with as well, because I don't, you know, this tool has undoubtedly put really bad guys away. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It has it has undoubtedly helped solve crimes, but it, then it has also perpetrated huge miscarriages of justice. So I don't know how you balance that. And that's something I really kind of grappled with a lot when I was writing the book. I think you're right. I think it's probably, there are probably other ways of getting convictions where you need to get convictions that don't risk the damage that the lie detector can potentially cause. And there's a lot of examples of, of recent history of, of people who have been wrongly convicted based on, on polygraph tests or, or lie detectors. Yeah. And the damage that causes is irreversible. I think especially when you combine bad science with the jury system, a panel of non-experts, it's very easy to be overruled by this stuff. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you get these experts in their field and they get flown in from across the country to impress upon you how much they know about this technology and they say this technology is infallible and you know and you don't really understand it because why would you right you're just a panel of ordinary people you know by design so these things can be useful if you put the right amount of weight on them and i think the problem with the lie detector is because it's such a compelling idea mm-hmm. something we've longed for for centuries too much weight gets put on the findings of a lie detector test and and therefore it gets it skews cases it skews things it messes up with the justice system and that's my kind of issue with it i think So to close this out, I will say that with Oscar Heinrich, who's my forensic scientist in American Sherlock, he had about four or 5,000 letters in his archive. I read probably half of them. I never once read a letter in which he expresses doubt in a case that he closed. Do you think, I think we know the answer to John Larson. Obviously, he expressed doubt and he was, it seems like, remorseful for even created this thing to begin with. Do you think that August Vollmer, the police chief, or Keeler, the assistant, ever had any doubts about the machine the way John Larson did? I think that privately they probably did. Hmm. 
I think their incentives were different. I think Larson was chasing justice. I think Volmer was chasing kind of a kinder way of doing policing. And I think maybe this is a bit uncharitable to Keela, but I think Keela was chasing fame, hmm. fortune. You know, he was chasing something else. And, and maybe to him, it didn't really matter too much about whether the cases that he was working on were solved. He wanted the rush, the publicity, the adrenaline of, of working on the cases, of being in the mix of, you know, tussling with bad guys and gangsters and robbers. So, yeah, I don't really know, actually. I think that's a really interesting question. It doesn't come across in their letters to each other, certainly. But maybe there are other conversations that they had where, where it's mentioned. I feel like a lack of self-reflection that comes with some self-doubt should be a requirement for anyone who holds someone's life in their hands. And for me, I was so startled to say, gosh, this man does not believe he's ever made a mistake. And clearly he has made mistakes. So, yeah, something to think about with this book in particular is you do have an awful lot of people who are propelling this machine forward, who are responsible for sending people away for life, for executing them, or setting them free. And it's all based on a machine that we now know is no good. Absolutely. What I will say is that once the box is open, it's like Pandora's box, right? You know, even if Keeler and Larson and Volmer had all said, we should stop using this, by the time they've opened the box, it's too late. You know, as well as those guys, there were dozens of other people that were doing similar things after the initial invention. So it's out there now. So it's about how you design robust systems to stop these things from kind of getting misused. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.